You're listening to EE Times On Air, and this is EE Times Current. I'm Eric Singer. Welcome to Brains and Machines, a deep dive into neuromorphic engineering and biologically inspired technology. In this episode, EE Times regular Sonny Baines talks to Dr. Toby Delbrook, one of the original neuromorphic engineers from Carver Mead's team at Caltech. Now a professor at the Institute of Neuroinformatics in Zurich, he spent his career developing neuromorphic cameras and other technology. In this interview, you'll find out how he got started in the field, his work developing the dynamic vision sensor, also known as an event camera, and the pros and cons of sparse representations. But first, today's EE Times current highlights. Chiplet makers expect to disrupt incumbents. Executives at chip startups Tenstorn and AlphaWave foresee a day when their firm's sales of chiplets could overcome the likes of Qualcomm. Can metamaterials revolutionize optical computing? The CEO of startup Neurophos says the use of metamaterials could result in power-efficient AI inference accelerators for the data center. MIPS aims to give back control for AI-centric compute. At CES 2024, MIPS announced its new strategic focus and at the same time rebrand with the help of RISC-V architecture. Now, back to Brains and Machines. Your hosts are Dr. Sonny Baines of University College London and Dr. Giulia D'Angelo of the Italian Institute of Technology. Welcome to Brains and Machines. I am Giulia D'Angelo. And I'm Sonny Baines. In today's episode, Sonny will discuss both the history and future of neuromorphic engineering with Professor Toby Delbrook from Institute of Neuroinformatics, known as INI, part of both the University of Zurich and ETH, Switzerland. After the interview, we will be talking to Rolf Etienne Cummings from Johns Hopkins University about the issues raised. Thanks, Julia. Toby has been involved with neuromorphic engineering since the very beginning, when he worked with Carver Mead and Misha Mahawald to show what you could do by combining the flexibility of brain-inspired systems with the speed of electronics. He's been involved with both the Telluride and Capocaccia neuromorphic engineering workshops since they began, and as well as influencing generations of participants and students, he was also one of the founders of the INI spin-off companies, Innovation, INI Labs, and Insightness. There are links to his work and some of the specific papers we'll be discussing on our website. You can check them out at brainsandmachines.net. I met up with Toby at the Capocaccia workshop towards neuromorphic intelligence in Sardinia last year. Toby Delbrook, welcome to Brains and Machines. First, can you tell me a little bit about your technical background? Yeah, I was trained as a physics and applied math as an undergrad at, in San Diego. Had a great time with that. I didn't know what I would, would do with it, but I just thought physics was a good foundation. Then I went to Caltech as a physicist, but I wasn't very good at that. I ended up programming a hypercube supercomputer, and I took a sabbatical for a year, and then I came back, and they were starting the neural systems and computation program at Caltech. John Hoffield, inventor of the Hoffield Network, started the NSC program, and I was the first student in that program. So what made you get interested in the whole electronics, neuromorphic, biologically inspired piece of that? Yeah, I knew nothing about electronics. As a physicist, I didn't learn any solid-state physics. I didn't know semiconductor physics. I barely learned any electronics. 
But then it was Carver Mead that got me and lots of other people excited about the possibility of modeling neural computation with electronics. And so I learned it on the job with him after taking his class. Do you want to talk at all about the early days at Caltech and the kinds of things you learned there? Yeah, it was a very exciting time. I mean, his lab wasn't in any building. It was in a few rooms right by Caltech Security that he had taken over right over the machine shop. So it was fantastic for getting machining work done. And he had built his neural computation group, starting with Misha Mahold, who we now, now named the prize for. She was my mentor in the lab, but there were a lot of other wonderful people in the lab at that time. And he had a system de development foundation grant that gave him five years of unrestricted money with very little reporting uh, based on his success in many other areas before that. He had gotten excited about the possibility of building neural computation with silicon and, and he had also helped establish MOSIS, the semiconductor uh, implementation service. And because of that, we basically had free fabrication money. And so we could literally design a chip and send it out the next day. In fact, one time I did do a chip design overnight. Carver said, why don't you do this chip? So I, I sit up all night and did a, a little simple test chip of course, there were a lot of mistakes in it. You know, it wasn't wired up correctly. So it was all that combination of stuff, this excitement from the first wave of neural networks that I was part of, at least, that Hoffield started with his wonderful papers and PNAS about the associative network. And the fact that CNS program hired Christoph Koch to get things going at Caltech. And just a lot of excitement about this area, which was totally unexplored at that time. And it was all virgin territory, so we could pick any part of the nervous system and just try to build it without any industrial purpose in mind. In terms of industrial purposes, you did get involved with a couple of Carver's companies back in the day with uh, Synaptics and with Foveon. Do you want to say anything about that? Yeah, my first real job, if you could call it that, after a PhD was working um, on a new kind of image sensor design that Carver had the idea for, it's a pulse bipolar image sensor right at the dawn of CMOS image sensors, normal, not CCD, but transistor image sensors. And so I was hired as a contract employee to execute those designs at Synaptics. We did the project at Synaptics because Carver had helped us start Synaptics with Federico Fagin, but all the fabrication was done in alliance with National Semiconductor. And that was a wonderful project to learn on too, because we were kind of a skunk works, just executing a, a prototype. And so we came up with a bunch of these cool designs, which led to Foveon being formed. Even though that particular design didn't pan out, had some problems with image lag and dark current and things like that, but it managed to get Foveon funded. Of course, one of the things you're most famous for these days is being part of the invention of the DVS and ATIS cameras, yeah. which are part of the great hope for neuromorphic engineering. Do you want to say a little bit about these cameras and what your hopes are for the technology? Yeah, they're really just a practical form of silicon retina that captures the key ideas that the eye is something that outputs a digital signal to the brain, which is asynchronous. There's no clock like a regular camera that has a frame clock and it's sparse. The output is very sparse. It just encodes brightness changes and it's quick. As soon as you see a change in the image, you get the output sent to the receiver. And when we started, the receiver was always thought to be another neuromorphic chip that spoke the same spike language. Actually, it turned out to be a lot more convenient to just build a USB version of this DVS, this dynamic vision sensor, so you could use the output on a computer. 
the whole, the whole camera was a result of this caviar project, this European project that Shichi was one of the leaders of, uh, Shichi Lu, and uh, took five PhD students to wire up the system and get it running because it was a lot of neuromorphic chips that were wired together that spoke this spike language, this address event representation language. And it was just the frustration with that led me to try to say, look, we'll just make a USB camera out of this and use the spikes on a computer. And that was super fun because then we could right away use the camera for all kinds of cool demonstrations, robot demonstrations, and we could study algorithms for processing the output. And the hope is that perhaps in combination with standard frame camera pixels that will make computer vision cameras more eye-like. The fact that they don't have to burn so much power all the time, run at super high frame rate in order to achieve low latency. They could have high dynamic range so they deal with bad lighting and that the output doesn't cost so much to process. And one of the inherent properties of these event-based cameras and one of the underlying neuromorphic principles is sparsity, right? It's yeah. the concept that you're trying to minimize your signal, get it to only the things you need to know and not all of the other things that you don't. Right. Sparsity. Actually, sparsity has a kind of a negative, like, non-fat milk. It's not fat, non-fat milk, it's fat-free milk, right? That was the great invention of the marketers, that fat-free milk is better than non-fat milk because non is negative. Sparsity actually is good, right? Because it means that you have to deal with less data. And the brain is incredibly sparse. On the average, your brain neurons only spike once a second. On the periphery, they spike many tens of times a second, but in the middle of the brain, they might spike once an hour. And it's these spikes that drive the computation. And so the sparsity is a really nice way to reduce the amount of computation you need to do, the amount of energy that you need to consume without increasing the time that it takes to do the computation. Because now the activity drives the computation. Yeah. So the work you're doing right now is about taking this principle of sparsity and applying it to more conventional machine learning algorithms. Can you talk a little bit about that work? More properly, it's, to, it's applying it to neural hardware, neural accelerators. Neural accelerators are special purpose chips that accelerate the computation of artificial neural networks. Like graphics processing units, GPUs, those accelerate neural networks, but they were never designed for that in the first place. They were designed for graphics. And so it turns out you can build digital circuits very efficiently and very easily because they're digital design with synchronous clocks that uh, accelerate the computation of artificial neural networks. And one really nice thing you can do with that's now becoming more popular, not only with us, you know, we right away realized that the sparsity idea was useful for neural accelerators, but also for industry. Many industry accelerators are trying to exploit sparsity. They're called sparsity aware hardware. And they do things like exploit weight sparsity, like the connection sparsity. They exploit activation sparsity. So if a neuron activation is zero, there's no point in updating the downstream neuron because it's zero. So it's like it's not spiking. Or if the change in the neuron state is small, then it can't have much effect downstream. So don't bother updating the downstream neuron if, if you haven't changed much. So these kind of different sparsities are very simple principles that are like what the brain does when it's doing neural computation. But you can do them in any digital form really easily compared to building mixed signal analog hardware. We've designed a series of accelerators like convolutional neural network and recurrent neural network accelerators that exploit either activation sparsity or temporal sparsity 
And our student Chang Gao, who's now a professor at TU Delft, designed the latest accelerator, which is a, a recurrent neural network accelerator that exploits weight and activation sparsity. And it burns about 50 times less energy and goes 50 times faster than not doing it. So that's a big win, not 50%, 50 times faster on some real world speech recognition problem where the neural network is a big thing, not compared to GPT or so, but it's big. It's a substantial recurrent neural network. One of your most recent papers involves optimizing for nonlinear model predictive control. Now, that gets very mathematical, so we probably don't want to go too deep into how that all works. But maybe you could tell us what it's for and why it's such an important problem. Just in general, brains are control systems for body. They're not just perceiving the world, but they're also controlling our bodies, and very impressively compared to robotics. Although factory automation robotics is really amazing how you have these pick-and-place machines that move faster than you can see, but they operate in a very controlled environment, and the capability of, of robots to operate in the real world is still quite primitive, and especially it's lagging far behind the ability of computers to perceive the world, like by computer vision or computer audition. The ability to do computer robotics, navigation, and control is far behind. So I just think that it's a very interesting area to work on. And it's exactly the kind of place where these neural accelerators might be of benefit. Because now you can train the neural network to do control or to predict the dynamics of the system. For example, here at the workshop, we have a robot sailboat and we're trying to collect data to predict how the sailboat responds to the wind coming from a certain direction, the rudder being in a certain position and the sail being pulled in. If we can predict how this sailboat will react to the rudder and sail position and the wind direction, then we might be able to control it to predict that. And But the sailboat is a very complicated thing to model with differential equations. So it's easier perhaps to train a neural network to model it. And then once we have that, we can use the neural accelerator, neural hardware, to predict the response of the sailboat. And that allow us to now optimize our rudder and sail position to achieve the best heading in a certain direction. That's the hope. But having said that, we're very much beginners in this control business. We're fumbling around at this point. Do you have any particular applications that you have your eye on further downstream if these uh, initial experiments are successful? Yeah, in general, any kind of agile robotic control having to do with legged robots or wheeled robots or flying robots, anything where the robot is actually quite difficult to model. It has lots of nonlinearities that are difficult to model using differential equations, or the differential equations are expensive to compute. It might just be easier to train a neural network to do the modeling. And then once you've done that, perhaps maybe it's even easier just to train a neural network to do the control, a little bit like our cortex and our spinal cord, our basal ganglia actually execute the control that our body does. I'm curious as to whether you consider this control project to be neuromorphic. Well, it's neuromorphic in the sense that I hope we can use our neuromorphic hardware neural accelerators. And it's neuromorphic in the sense that we're trying to train artificial neural networks to either model the system as, as our brain does when we imagine we're doing an action. We're able to model ourselves what we think will happen when we do something. And that's a very important part of planning right, whether you should do one thing or another, forehand or backhand, or shoot the bank shot or the fall away straight into the hole. So you have to be able to model this when you're imagining and planning an action 
And if you do that with some neural hardware, or by any means, you could call it neuromorphic, right? It's up to you to call it what you want. So what's, what's your definition of neuromorphic these days? I'm not slavish to any particular definition. I don't like these arguments about definitions. Anything that it takes to inspire you to do good work, right? Has that changed over the years? Oh, yeah. It's changed a lot. In the beginning, we were very slavish, and I think all of us neuromorphs from Carver's lab were very slavish to the idea that everything should be done with subthreshold analog circuits. And I just think that's held back the field and to some extent. Do you want to talk about what those subthreshold circuits were and why they were so interesting at the time? Yeah, the observation was very interesting. I mean, Carver observed that the subthreshold exponential relation between current and voltage in a transistor was like the um, voltage-activated nerve channels that you have in neurons. They both have these exponential laws that are basically just governed by statistical mechanics and Boltzmann exponential distributions. And so from that analogy, the fact that you have the same physics at the lowest level of the device physics, came the idea that you could build circuits that would model neurons using the same exponentials and so on. And that was the whole beginning of neuromorphic circuit design was based around designing a whole bunch of very interesting subthreshold CMOS circuits to do things like build neurons, build photoreceptors, build different kinds of winner-take-alls, nonlinearities, lots of cool circuit designs. And some of those have real industrial relevance now. Some are used widely because the subthreshold is also interesting for building low-power analog circuits just for signal processing or industrial tasks. But the difficulty with that is that it, it didn't recognize that when you build one of these subthreshold transistors, it's very imprecise. And you might design it to make one nanoamp of current at a particular voltage, but then some will make two nanoamps, some will make a half nanoamp. The spread in the currents is huge, unless you make the transistor gigantic. You get a huge spread in currents because of the threshold mismatch, because of the fact that when the channel is built, the threshold varies a lot just because of the random rain of dopants that landed up in the channel to set the barrier for the transistor. And that means that the computation is very imprecise. And it makes it really hard to build something when half your pixels don't actually work because of this mismatch. So you've been involved with neuromorphic engineering since the late 80s. You've just given us an example of one of the things that you might have said was a kind of tenet of neuromorphic engineering back when you started that has changed. Can you talk about other ideas that have come and gone, the ones that, that maybe just didn't pan out and that everyone was very excited about at the time, or to the contrary, ideas that didn't seem like they were going to be important? I think one idea that didn't pan out industrially was the need to copy neural circuits very exactly. Like the fact that you might not need to actually build a Hodgkin-Huxley neuron to make a useful neural computing device, even though the Hodgkin-Huxley mechanism of spiking is fundamental to all spiking neurons. That may be just because that's what the biophysics could easily do it could be there's some inherent robustness to this mechanism of spiking that we don't realize yet that will actually make it valuable industrially, right? So, so in other words, you're saying that you would want to slavishly follow the biology and that turned out not to be necessarily right for technology. Yeah, I'm not saying that it's necessarily wrong, but you shouldn't go into this business with your eyes wide shut, 
we have a lot of students that think that if you just copy the brain, you'll end up with something useful. And the constraints are just different. They're at the basic physics level, they're the same, but there's also huge differences between silicon and wetware. In electronics, the electrons are 10 million times faster than ions. And so it allows you to do in electronics things that you can't possibly do in the brains, like multiplex signals. And of course, everybody realizes that, but it's not a fundamental thing. You know, it's what people still think is fundamental is that they have these exponentials, not that there's a 10 million times difference in mobility. And that one technology is two-dimensional, but it's much faster in multiplexing signals, silicon, and the other one's three-dimensional and it grows itself. And it has all kinds of molecular computation that we don't understand anything about that we can't do in silicon. So, you know, there's still huge differences. So it's okay to have a, an idea and get inspiration. It's never bad to have inspiration, but don't go into it uh, blindly. Do you feel that the neuromorphic engineering community, because it is, of course, very much a community, do you feel that they did not get on board with deep learning early enough, that they didn't see the potential and perhaps even to a certain extent the threat that it posed early enough? No, I, I just think that the people that did neuromorphic engineering weren't particularly skillful at large-scale digital design. They weren't really interested in that because in some way it is in, in industrial business, it's a very prosaic business. In some way, if you want to design a digital system like that, it's largely straightforward to a large extent, right? It's automated by very complex tools. And I just think they didn't think that it was particularly interesting to do that. but. Now, if you just take a step back and say, look, there are a lot of neural, neuromorphic ideas that you can put into those chips, it becomes interesting again. It was Dick Feynman who told me personally, everything is interesting if you look at it deep enough. So I've taken that to heart. Is it possible that deep neural networks will just become more neuromorphic over time? Well, I wouldn't say definitely because, it, again, an artificial neural network is not a brain. Uh, certainly not the way it's computed now in the cloud. As it becomes more distributed to devices, as it has to run on battery power and last for a long time, then it'll probably take on many of these real brain-like neural characteristics, but it won't be the same because it's a different technology, especially when new memory technologies come along, which are really hard to introduce, but people are working hard on them. But the more that things become more neural at the low level, the more it'll become brain-like at the high level. What are the things that are going to need to emerge in neuromorphic engineering to make it really usable for people who are not just trying to do science, but, but more trying to do engineering, more trying to build useful things? What are the frameworks? What are the design rules? What are the kinds of things that you see as being important in the coming decade or so? That's a really good question. I don't have a good answer for you though, but obviously it's uh, making things highly usable, providing the kindergarten examples, the reference design that allows people just, just like when you have a good software package and you start with a very simple hello world and then you edit it, that's the easiest way to start. Providing really accessible uh, hardware and software that people can actually use for toy applications if needed. And that's not a simple business at all. Having gone through that with the event cameras, I realized that it's a tremendous amount of work to really make things usable. And I know a lot of groups are trying to do that, but it's difficult for a student in a lab 
to write all the code, write all the documentation, and especially produce enough copies of a device to make it usable by other people. Difficult. But that's what it takes, I think. Not just publications, but availability. And so you can get a user base going. Toby Delbrook, thanks so much for coming on to Brains Machines. Thanks, Sonny. It was fun. Thanks, Sonny. For more about Toby's work, please go to brainsmachines.net. Now, we welcome back our regular commentator, Professor Ralph Etienne Cummings from Johns Hopkins University. Sonny, Julia, how are you? Wonderful to be back again. Hi, Ralph. So what can I say? Toby is an institution and it's so pragmatical and grounded to reality. And I, lo I love the way he's not a slave of the word neuromorphic because I am instead. And, it used to uh, be. <laughs> it used to be. Uh, but I am at the moment and, and it's very good to see his perspective because it made me see with different eyes and point of view. You talked about sparsity, Sonny, with him, and that is a great gift, but it's also a course, right? Because then you need to reconstruct what you are looking at, and that is very difficult. And it talks about adverse events of representation, which is a protocol used to transmit events asynchronously, and you have a sender and a receiver, and the events are encoded and sent across a shared data bus. But then, when you receive that stream of events, the challenge is to understand the information inside. And this is where neuromorphic algorithms and population coding comes into place and becomes essential, in my opinion. What do you think, guys? Sparsity is key, as he points out, right? You've got 10x rate of data coming into the, the system, but somehow the processing is being done at a tenth or a hundredth of the rate at which data is coming in. So somehow there has to be something in between that picks out what is relevant and what is not, right? So in a way, attention is exactly an example of that, right? You cannot look at everything that's coming at you. Right. And there are two ways to do this, either to say, look, I can zoom in on a certain area and zoom in with high resolution, but zoom in on small pieces, or maybe I can look at it a bit wider and have fewer bits of data coming at you. But yes, then you have to be able to infer what the rest of the scene is. Right. There are multiple papers that's been written that basically shows that with a few data bits, you can do a pretty good job of inferring what's going on beyond those three data bits, as long as you have a pretty good dictionary of what are expected types of input. So think about natural images. There's one over F drop off of, of the frequency components, and you use those as your bases. You can reconstruct uh, an entire scene without having to actually have the entire scene in front of you. Sparsity provides us a mechanism to reduce data, but we need a little bit more of, a, of support in order to be able to understand that reduced data. And then we can do various forms of computation with it, right? We can either do reconstruction to see what's there, or we can do learning or what Toby talks about in terms of you know, using it for um, controls and for other places in the neuromorphic pipeline that you can take advantage of it. But anyway, sparsity is key. I mean, that's something as well that we've been doing a lot of work on recently is that combination between sparsity and learning. 
picking out the right information to learn on, as opposed to all the information that comes in. So, yeah, we always fall down into the attention hole. And one thing that I'd like to say is that for the inherent capabilities of these cameras, we are always attentive most of the time to the, the fastest movement. But most of the time, that's not the, the most important thing. And you are driven by the number of events because you are driven by this stream of events. And then attention might be following just the law of motion. Yeah, but I don't agree with that. <laughs> That's where we disagree. I think there's a lot more to attention than just motion. Motion is, is one of the things. And, and these are, as I said, there's a new data set that's coming out that's going to show, especially for event-based cameras, motion is not the only thing that grabs you. It's the relationship of the events, not the fact that there's more. It's how they're distributed in certain areas that seems to drag our attention as opposed to just the fact that there's more in, in certain areas. Yes, my point is that we need more and motion is not enough. Great. And actually with like the end part of my PhD, where I prioritize that rather than motion and how can I do that? I just think that I had this problem over and over with the even-driven cameras because motion is like the inherent information can, that comes out with it. I agree with you here. And I think this gets back to the discussion we were having in the Gallego podcast related to the fact that I'm a little bit bored with these DVS cameras, right? Because I can see that they're useful, but I don't think that's all that there is to vision. I think there has to be more. And what I would like to see, so if you imagine a kind of almost arbitrary frame-based camera as capturing all the information that there is. What I'd like to see is, okay, maybe a DVS camera is capturing the motion information, then we have something else that different kind of information and that we're getting lots of slices of what vision is in different ways. And then we can take all of those features and bring them together to create and that motion is probably not all there is to get that meaning. It's all, not all we need to get that meaning. What frustrates you? Yeah, it frustrates me a lot of things with these models because the point is not only looking at the features, but also looking at some task-driven approach and that is completely missed from what I've done. So there's so many things that, that are influencing our attention. I feel stuck at the moment. We don't clearly understand what's salient apart from faces. Actually, you could imagine a lot of tasks where faces are irrelevant because there are no people around, right? In terms of AI tasks, we can't always assume that's an assumption based on a kind of environment. Yeah, so top-down, bottoms-up mechanism for specification is what we're referring to here, right? So if I'm in the desert, my top-down is going to be telling me where is the water? <laughs> so I'm going to be looking for that. If I'm in a, in a nightclub and looking for a partner, maybe then the faces or something else is going to attract me. So that's what it comes down to. It's all about reducing the data according to the task at hand. Sometimes faces are important, sometimes not so much. So one of the things that I really appreciated was the because I've been thinking a lot about the place of neuromorphic engineering potentially in robotic control and how that might work. 
And I thought he explained this idea of learning what works, right? Just simply same as we were talking about in Beatrice Nahida's podcast about that idea of learning on a particular piece of hardware. In these conditions, what's the the turning of the sail that's going to make the boat go as we want it to? I thought that was really interesting, and I will be keen to see how that work and what all has been done in the the control mm. space. It's not new. Okay, I mean, let's put that in perspective, right? Folks have been thinking about that for a long time. At the neuromorphic workshop, I think you might have been there, Sonny, maybe in the late 90s, uh, you know, where we had uh, Tony uh, Lewis building a walking robot that had vision that had to put its foot at the right location in order for it not to fall off this pedal stool, right? So it's a walking machine where you had to learn that, right? You had to learn what is the right relationship between affordances and, and foot placements and visual input in order for it to walk successfully. The difference might be that in some ways, maybe what Tony and collaborators were doing at that time might have been a little bit simplistic in the sense that he was using stereo as part of his mechanism for for determining where to put his foot placement. And then you just look for things in close proximity and you adapt accordingly, right? And with the type of things that Toby, I think, has been working a little bit with John Doyle. So is a lot more sophisticated control theoretic perspective. Tommy talks a lot about the problem we have with mismatch, and I'd like to point out a little bit this problem. And I remember Giacomo and Elisabetta talking about population coding and the fact that we have to rely on the network and not solely on the neuron. So the question here is, are we making a bug as a feature or there is further potential in looking at the population response and really the correct approach? I think there's no question that variations can actually help you. And again, it depends on what type of resources you have, right? If I have a lot of neurons, like in our brain, then you don't care that it's a, each one of them is a little bit different. And in fact, you can use that to give you a much more spread of your functions, to find the ways to get out of minimums and all these kinds of things that we've talked about previously. When you have three transistors in your pixel and that's all you have and you have to make the best picture out of that, uh, maybe then mismatch really matters, right? And that's when you have to try to make them work as closely as possible to the ideal so that every pixel behaves exactly the same way. So that's where mismatch is problematic. And in another place where it is not problematic is where you have a lot of resources to throw at it. So population code is pretty much throwing resources at the problem where you have a lot of neurons to represent one signal or one variable, but you use a population to represent that one. So Ralph, what did you think about what Toby had to say overall? So I thought Toby's interview was excellent. I loved it for various reasons. I love the historical perspective. I love the trajectory that he laid out, how neuromorphic was taught and how it, it morphed in itself, how it changed, how his involvement bringing in the digital world to this world that was supposed to be entirely analog and subthreshold and so on, and how today, you know, what he's doing, you know, with Java AER and all these kinds of things that he has done along the way, NDVS and so on, making it available to not just 
folks who are working in the analog space, but also work in digital space and sharing back and forth. So that was really cool. I like the way he also brought in the various important contributors to the field, even though maybe not even directly, but indirectly like Hopfield and so on, and how they played a role in his life, which is not dissimilar to how he played roles in my life and other neuromorphs along the way. So that was pretty cool. There are obviously other folks, Paul Mueller, Vanishpiegel, Eric Vito, who also was part of that trajectory, maybe in parallel, but definitely there was a lot of cross fertilization, if you will, of ideas between these different areas and so on. I thought that the way that he talks about the role of one of the most important entities that was put together by the U.S. government and Caltech and other, other places was Moses, where we got all our chips fabricated. The fact that he could literally fabricate chips overnight and get something back. Those days, you know, there were so many pieces of silicon that never got tested. Right? because we had so much access to fabrication. They just got built and then they came back and some of it got tested, some of it didn't and so on, right? But so many ideas got tried out at that time. So it was really a very special time. And I was lucky as well to have been part of that flow. And I would argue that the VLSI integrated circuit industry benefited from that one investment in the largest way possible, you know, in any field, I would argue. That same trajectory is what created the Telluride Neuromorphic Workshop that brought a lot of us together, that educated a lot of us, that developed a lot of us, gave us community, gave us ability to move forward in our careers and get new ideas, collaborate and so on. And that also started from, from that crucible. There was a, a passage that attracted a lot of my attention and he said, the more that things become more neural at a low level, the more it will become brain-like at the high level. I think as much as he put like famous words in his heart, I will put this in my heart, I think. <laughs> yeah, I, I love a way of explaining too. And also the fact that another thing that he said is we do, we do not need only publications, but we need to prove that the systems are working. That unfortunately nowadays we then fall down on the publish or perish, but I do agree with him. We need to do stuff. So I spent some time at the back in the early 90s when Steve Benton was there, uh, just a few months, and they had the slogan, demo or die, which I know has become very common, but they really lived that. These students at the Media Lab were ready, literally at the drop of a hat, a sponsor could walk into the building and they would have to demo their project because somebody might be willing to give them some and, and they learned how to do that. And I do think that's something that we all have to keep in mind, that it's not enough to build stuff that works for you. It has to work. It has to be shareable and have a vocabulary that everyone can understand and a programming framework and whatever. Yeah. Toby, and, Toby said uh, all that. That was part yeah. of his kind of his uh, strength. I must also point out that the National Science Foundation should be given a little bit of credit as well for what they did, what they funded, what they supported. They supported the CNS, the center that Toby was part of, that Christoph Koch, that Antonio Panetta, and that produced 
so many of our neuromorphic colleagues and, and parents and whatnot. And also they've been funding the Telluride workshop for 25, 30 years now. So I think it's one of the longest running workshops. So there had been some pretty insightful individuals at that time that looked at this and said, hey, this is something worth investing in. And now we don't have the, the neuromorphic computer on my desk yet, but it's becoming more and more relevant. And one of the things that Toby also talked about was in AI accelerators, how neuromorphics now are playing a role in AI acceleration and so on. And that's going to be a very important component of the whole AI revolution. They had a piece of work, he and Xi Chi Lu, a few years before, I think, I want to say the late about taking neuromorphic principles of sparsity and applying them to conventional neural networks or to large language models and that kind of thing. And that, again, to me is quite profound because it implies this kind of growing together of more conventional technologies with the neuromorphic technologies. Now, of course, it's always a bit scary because then you can lose your identity as a technology together too much. But it's nice to know that people are recognizing that there are lessons to learn in both directions. Maybe that's the reason why the early neuromorphs were so dogmatic about protecting the turf. Neuromorphic engineering means X and only X, and it cannot mean Y, right? Because if you haven't produced a brand that is recognizable by itself, then it gets completely overran, right? Now it's obviously a very different world, but the change really started happening around, I would say, the late 2000s, 2009 and so on, during the Synapse program, right? That was a DARPA-funded program where we moved away from analog models of neurons and more into digital models of neurons. And the memory stiff memories and so on and so forth became also more relevant and floating gates and all that stuff started becoming more and more relevant to the field. And we saw, you know, a shift in the mindset. Sally, you said that Toby was working at Polvion and I got interested in, and I was looking at the Fulvion X3 sensor. So it's an image sensor designed by Fulvion, was actually the, the company that you were talking about, composed of three vertically stacked autodiodes. And it was developed in 2002, and it had a problem with lots of sharpness in the longer wavelength. Where did that go? So you can read the whole story in this book by George Gilder, The Silicon Eye. It's a good read, but it's not really about neuromorphic engineering. He doesn't get so far into the technology, but it's that different wavelengths can penetrate different layers of silicon. And so that was the basis on which the Fovion pixels could be so close together. So you can read about it. My understanding is got overrun by digital, by conventional digital technology, that essentially all of the other companies just increased and increased the number of pixels until the Fovian advantage wasn't an advantage. I, it had slightly different, slightly different perspective, Sunny. I think the Fovian advantage was still an advantage, right? Because of the following reason. If you can put three pixels RGB in the same vertical stack, then you can definitely make a much higher density array than putting them side to side, right? The Bayer pattern, where you have two greens, one red and one blue, right? No question about it. The problem was 
it just did not work as well. It was slower. There was too much bleeding between the different colors. You couldn't separate out. You couldn't say, this is where the red and the green separates out and the noise was higher and so on and so forth. So in the end, it was killed on quality, not just volume, right? That's where we disagree, Sammy, a little bit, right? You know, I was on the technical committee of ISSCC during the, the height of the whole entire development of the CMOS camera industry where the Sonys and the Fujitsus and the Toshibas and, and so on and so forth were just always trying to beat each other on that one spec or that slightly different spec. And I saw that whole development. And I remember when Fovion came online as well and the debates that were happening among the experts right there, because there was clear fear initially that, oh my God, this is going to eat our lunch. But then Unfortunately for Fovion, but maybe fortunately for all the other camera <laughs> manufacturers, their approaches uh, ended up being more effective at creating the beautiful pictures that we so take for granted now. I just want to say that the opinion that I gave was not my opinion. It was communicated to me in this book because I was not there. This was not a field that I was covering at the time. So I don't really know about it beyond what was in this book, which I thought was interesting. We but, can disagree uh, too, Sonny. It's okay. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I hope that answers your question. Uh, you can certainly read a lot about it in this book. Um, but also, I think on, a, on the point getting back to physics and all of that, it gets back to that idea that just because there's some interesting physics doesn't mean it makes a useful product. And there are lots of things that until you get to the stage where you can just shove a lot of money into it, the engineer really nicely engineer out these problems, then you're not going to have something that can be sold or that's going to be uh, manufacturable on any scale. And that's one of the reasons I enjoy being on side. I don't have to make any money out of anything. I just have to find stuff that's interesting. That seems like a great place to stop. Thanks to Sunny for another great and interesting interview and Ralph for your insightful comments. In our next episode, Sunny will be talking to Dr. Chiara Bartolozzi at the Italian Institute of Technology in Genoa about her work with neuromorphic sensors in robotics. We hope you will join us then. That brings another episode of EE Times Current to a close. Thank you for listening, and thanks to our guest, Dr. Toby Delbrook. EE Times Current is available through all the major podcast platforms, but if you reach us at our website, eetimes.com, you'll find a transcript of this episode along with other resources. EE Times Current is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Greg McRae and Taylor Marvin at Coop Studios in Boulder, Colorado. The segment producer was Stephanie Munoz. I'm Eric Singer. Thanks for listening.